Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to the Corbett Report podcast. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and today we are going to do another installment of that series, Questions for Corbett, where we answer your questions. So once again, the questions can come via the contact form on CorbettReport.com, through the YouTube video comments, and or through uh, Twitter. And of course, video responses are also welcomed and will be open on this uh, posting on YouTube. So if you want to leave a video response, we will make that a priority for the next edition of this series as well. And on that note, we actually have our first uh, video response posting uh, for you today. And this one comes from YouTube user No Longer A Theory. So let's get straight into the first question. My first question is, can you share your opinion as to why uh, all, you know, the organization uh, or the alternative media, like the Young Turks, uh, you know, report objectively and, and you know, what I consider good journalism on pretty much all subjects except for 9-11. You know, they, they, they address the, the civil liberties, they address everything that's currently going on in this crazy world, but when it comes to 9-11, you know, it's Jenk it officially it doesn't buy into the whole, you know, I, I just have a hard time believing that uh, human beings that seem to be, you know, very smart at what they do and articulate are getting it wrong with that issue. Is it because Al Gore owns current? Is it his, you think it's Jenks? You know, he really believes that because, you know, he seems like a genuine character. So if your take on that would be appreciated. Second question. Is there a Max Kaiser for Canadians? Is there a Canadian that's talking uh, specifically what we can expect as Canadians when the reserve currency finally goes uh, belly up. Because, you know, you being Canadian, here in Alberta, it's oil and gas driven. Like, we live a life of privilege in Canada anyhow. But, I mean, so, uh, when the reserve currency does die, uh, or even your take on what, what we can specifically see here at Ground Zero. Um, you know, I obviously don't think we're going to go as bad as, or be as bad as, uh, bad off as the states, or am I just ignorant, you know, because it's the world reserve currency that, you know, it's probably done like that for a reason. <laughs> uh, anyhow, those are my two questions. Uh, if you have the time to, uh, get back to me, that'd be great. Um, I learn a new word every time I watch one of your broadcasts. Um, you are by far the most objective fact-finding journalist I've come across uh, anywhere. So thank you for everything you do. And uh, congratulations on your new addition to your family. And take care, sir. Well, thank you for the video. Thank you for the questions. Thank you for taking the time to put that together. And thank you for the kind words. I'm blushing from ear to ear. But uh, to, to get into your questions, first off, uh, regarding the first part, regarding the Young Turks specifically and uh, Sank Uyghur and, and the crew there, um, I must admit that I'm not particularly a fan of what they do. They are way too partisan for my liking and very, very much stuck in the left-right paradigm so that generally I don't even have to watch their videos to understand what they're going to say on any given subject. So I generally don't watch their videos. Um, other than uh, the NDAA, uh, their coverage of the NDAA I think was quite well done and they actually were one of the few outlets out there that was pointing out just how terrible the NDAA 2012 was and just how dire the 
the uh, some of the clauses in there are regarding indefinite detention um, by military authorities. That's I mean that that they did a great job of exposing that for what it actually was. But other than that, I've never heard them talk about false flag terrorism. I've never heard them question anything about 9-11. I've never heard them talk about any of these types of subjects that I think go to the real core of the real political paradigm that, again, has nothing to do with the left-right Washington politics facade that they fixate on there. I think it's the same with a lot of the other pseudo-alternatives, uh, Democracy Now!, etc. To the extent that they ever even broach the subject of something like false flag terrorism, it's only to talk about something that happened decades or centuries in the past. They never want to talk about what's going on right now. They never want to examine current uh, events and current geopolitics in the context of false flag terrorism. And they uh, they never want to broach 9 and truth. So, uh, so I think that goes to show that, at any rate, if we out there understand that the official 9-11 conspiracy theory is a fairy tale, then it's incumbent on us to spread that awareness and information and not to wait or rely on any media outlet, whether alternative mainstream or something in between, to do that for us. So once again, just like in the last questions for Corbett, once again, let me re- reiterate, I'm not here to, uh, to put anyone up on pedestals, worship leaders, uh, follow any individuals, or to uh, blindly pray or go along with whatever any particular outlet or media personality says. And I don't think anyone out there should be doing that, and that includes anything that I say. Of course, everything has to be taken uh, for for factual uh, on its factual merits, and those have to be weighed against what's being said. And whatever type of rhetoric is being employed, however nice-sounding it might be, I think we always have to go back to the facts and try to double-check what's being told to us and simply not go along with uh, media personalities because we happen to, to like their style or whatever. So long story short, no, I don't. I, I have no idea whether Senk Uyghur is a, uh, an up and up guy, whether he's truly uh, honest and genuine or whether he's having his arm twisted behind the scenes or whether he just uh, doesn't understand any of this. I have no idea. I have no outlet into that. I have n- nothing but speculation in that area. And at the end of the day, I don't really care. The point is that he doesn't talk about false flag terrorism. He doesn't talk about 9-11 truth. That's a subject that's never, ever going to appear on the Young Turks. So I'll take their uh, their information for what it's worth, which, in my opinion, is not a whole lot, generally speaking. Uh, the second question uh, about the dollar reserve uh, and uh, how the Canadian dollar might survive or or thrive or, or fail in the event of a, a U.S. dollar uh, global reserve collapse that's an interesting question. Um, regarding the first part of your question, whether there's a Canadian economic analyst that's worth listening to out there on these matters, I, uh, I'm sure there are, but I don't personally follow any. I don't know of any that are that are interesting or that I'm following on a regular basis. So if anyone out there has any suggestions for Canadian economic analysts, please put them in the show notes. I'm always interested. Uh, sorry, please put them in the comments. I'm always interested and uh, would be uh, interested to hear your guys' opinions on that. But uh, but generally speaking, my own take on this uh, goes back to an interesting development from earlier this year, uh, late last year, early this year, when the IMF said that they were going to add the Canadian and Australian dollars as uh, reserve currencies on their COFR. That's the uh, composition of foreign exchange reserve reporting template that they use that uh, keeps track of, well, it used to keep track of just five currencies that were deemed to be the the safest, the strongest in the world, the US dollar, the euro, the British pound, the Japanese yen, and the Swiss franc. And these are uh, tracked and the the central bank holdings of these uh, currencies are tracked by the IMF and compiled in data. And that's uh, that's basically a, supposed to be a snapshot of the the uh, economic health of a uh, of a central bank or a, a nation's treasury, whether how much 
how much money they have in these currencies is an uh, indication of basically how how able they are to transact on the international stage, etc., and how uh, how stable their own currency might be as a result of that. So now that they're adding the Canadian dollar and the Australian dollar, I don't know exactly when that's going to happen, but sometime in the in the coming months. Uh, that's that's a significant event, and I think what this shows is that exactly as uh, the people who have been following this for years and who have been talking about the long-term goal of making a one-world, one-currency situation, one-world government, one-currency, that people who have been talking about that for years have been saying that they're going to play currency against currency, there's going to be a period of currency wars where we see big fluctuations and the US dollar is going up at one point and the euro is going down and then vice versa and then another currency will enter the mix, the yen will start going haywire and that will play off against the others. There will be a period of currency wars and destabilization which will present the next stage of the solution. Well, in order to have more stable currencies we need bigger regional currency blocks and then eventually the regional currency blocks will be merged into the one currency and that's uh, that's some ways down the road but I think that's the long-term trend. And I think what we're seeing right now with the IMF saying, well, look, all of these currencies are getting a bit haywire these days. Let's add some more to make it a bit more stable. Let's add the Canadian dollar and the Australian dollar. They've been doing well. Now there's talk that the New Zealand dollar may, may be next. I think this is just part of that extension. So what my basic take on this is, is that the Canadian dollar is not in the long term, uh, the Canadian dollar, the Australian dollar, the New Zealand dollar, whatever the currency you might be thinking of, I think it's not going to escape the effects of what's coming. I don't think the US dollar is going to collapse as the global reserve currency in the in the short term, in the next five years, say, but it's almost inevitable in the long term, in the next 10 to 20 years, for, for example, unless, of course, some big cataclysmic apocalyptic event comes along to, to upset the status quo. But I think we can, at any rate, we can see the trend. The US dollar is eventually going to be eclipsed, probably not by any single currency, because there's no markets that are big enough in the world to support a, a global reserve currency um, other than the U.S. Uh, markets that exist right now. So I think rather than eclipsing a single currency eclipsing the U.S. dollar, I think it's going to be a basket. And I think the IMF is already uh, positioning themselves in that in that matrix to uh, play currencies off against each other, which means that the Canadian dollar is not going to escape un, un, unscratched from whatever cataclysm or calamity befalls the, the American dollar. It's all part and parcel. They're all tied in together. And if anything, the Canadian dollar, simply by its physical and economic proximity to the American dollar, is going to, uh, is going to feel the effects probably almost, almost as much um, and, and relatively soon. I think whatever type of broad-scale destabilization we see, uh, Canada is not going to be very far behind. No matter the flowery rhetoric that we've seen over the past several years about how Canada was was in so much better shape after the, the Lehman collapse than most other countries, because their banking sector is so robust. Uh, blah, blah, blah. And of course, that's all being given the lie recently by the uh, the housing situation in Canada starting to deteriorate, etc. So we are seeing problems in the Canadian system. I think Canadians are a little bit uh, pie in the sky when it comes to this because they want to think that they are truly uh, going to get out of this um, unscathed or at least not so scratched. I don't think so. I think the long-term agenda is to get all of these currencies in one big basket and to melt them all together and to uh, form the world uh, currency. And that, in order for that to happen, it means that every currency is going to have to go through the same types of process. All right, uh, a lot to talk about there. Maybe we can devote some more time to it in a further podcast, but let's move along to some more questions. Next up, we have Jerry who writes... 
Uh, where does the strong pro-fluoride stance originate? What is their motivation to continue in the face of overwhelmingly negative data? I smell a sweet sweetheart deal, but I can't figure it out. Why are they so adamantly pro-fluoride? Any ideas? All right, thank you for the question, Jerry. It's an important question, and I think that the overall arching agenda, uh, overarching agenda when it comes to, for example, the fluoridation is, I think, as we've identified before, it is uh, to be identified in the in the eugenics uh, uh, f- philosophy and mindset of the people at the very the very top of the power pyramid who are uh, exerting and investing vast amounts of resources into the system to direct things in a way that's uh, that's amenable to the people who on the record and openly admit that they want the, uh, the, the population A, dumbed down, and B, reduced, ultimately. And again, this isn't speculation. This isn't something that's just, uh, that we're just thinking about in an abstract sense. If you go and read things like The Next Million Years by Charles Darwin Galton, etc., etc., they talk openly about how they want to dumb down the masses and uh, make males less aggressive and uh, less dominant and uh, eventually to cull the population. So this is, again, all part of the admitted on-the-record agenda. And lo and behold, we have these chemicals that end up in the water supply, including fluoride, including the endocrine disruptors, including all of these other chemicals that are that are finding their way into the food and water and even the printer ink on the receipts that we get from stores and everything you can imagine. And uh, it starts to transform ourselves physically and we end up with the the disappearing male phenomenon where uh, sperm rates are, are plunging th- across the developed world, etc., etc. Again, I think there is an agenda behind this, and it, ha- it can be identified with that eugenics philosophy. But um, it, uh, when it gets down to the nuts and bolts of some of the individual players in this fight, I don't think everyone is a eugenicist who's rubbing their hands with glee, hoping to kill off um, vast swaths of the population. I think there are a lot of people who are involved in this for the monetary incentives. There are huge monetary incentives behind the fluoride industry as it's developed, and it's important to understand the roots of the fluoride industry, uh, the fluoridation campaign, in the, for example, the aluminum industry, where the, part of the uh, the toxic byproducts of the aluminum process um, was uh, basically, well, if we can take this and we dump it in the river, it's polluting the river. But if we take this and we add it as an additive to the water supply, we can actually get paid for doing that. So that was an ingenious thing. And uh, that's been laid out by some researchers in great detail b- before. Um, when it comes to the fluoride issue, there are a couple of documentaries I would recommend. One is Professional Perspectives on Water Fluoridation because it's just a bunch of doctors and dentists and scientists talking calmly about the, uh, the the scientific evidence about fluoride, so it's very effective for that. Another one is called The Fluoride Deception. It's, um, it's based on a book that was written by Christopher Bryson, who was a former BBC presenter, and he did some uh, a lot of good research into the origins of fluoridation in the United States and why um, and how that came together. And, uh, and he's, he put together a lot of this, including Edward Bernays' connection to this and how he helped to get uh, fluoride um, normalized as part of the, uh, the American water, flu- uh, water uh, system. Um, uh, all of that research into the, the, the economic aspects of this, I think, equally important and uh, have been fleshed out in great detail. So, of course, I will put the links in the show notes for this episode. If you're watching on YouTube, the show notes are, as always, just down in the comment, uh, just below the video where it says show show notes and MP3. Please click on the link there. I know every single podcast episode, there's someone who asks for the link to something that I've cited. And it's becoming kind of funny that I always have to reply show uh, links in the show notes, as always. So if other people see someone asking for links, uh, you can always direct them to the show notes. All right, uh, let's move along. We have an email in from Lydia who writes... 
After seeing your video on how all our email can be accessed, wondering if you know of a more secure way of communicating electronically, or as I'm thinking, it's all caught by satellite and that's that, and is someone on our side working on a secure form of electronic communication? End quote. Okay, Lydia, good question. Very good question, and one that I get quite a lot from people. Um, I've said this before many times, and I've talked about why this is, etc., etc. Basically, I believe online anonymity is a pipe dream. I really don't think that there's any way, ultimately, at the very root, to uh, to communicate in a way that wouldn't be snoopable in some manner. Um, at least not while we're on the internet, our infrastructure, as it's been created, obviously, by the DARPA, or what was known at the time as ARPA, the ARPANET, which became the internet. And as we know, they've got, uh, since at the very least since 1994 in the Calia Act, they are literally snarfing up all of the data. They're splitting it off right there at the trunk every time, uh, wherever it comes into the uh, United States and storing it wholesale. The NSA is storing all data communication that comes in. So even if it's encrypted and even if the NSA can't break that encryption, um, at any rate, that data is stored and uh, presuming that they'll be able to crack it one day, it's still there and will be accessible to them. So I think we have to um, be very, very wary of claims of anonymity um, on the internet because I just think it's a pipe dream. And and. Uh, my my message is always that rather than making that making everybody scared and always oh I can't I can't write an email to anyone because they're they're going to look at everything I do. The point is that we are not the criminals; they are the criminals for snooping and spying on everything that we do, and we have to speak up even more vociferously and even more passionately on this issue of privacy before uh, before the public just zombifies away into this. Well, I don't care. Why do I care? if they read my emails, which is unfortunately becoming the standard response. So we have to step up our campaign and we have to advocate even more forcefully. We have to uh, write even more passionately in our in our personal emails, but also in our public uh, correspondence as well, I think, on this issue. But specifically on the question of communicating um, more securely, well, uh, so- someone has recently written in with an idea for uh, using something called BitMessage, which works on a peer-to-peer type system, hence the Bitcoin type reference, BitMessage. And this is a, uh, a an encrypted message system that sends P2P, uh, peer-to-peer communications, and um, it's decentralized and trustless. So basically, everyone on the network sends all the messages around and it gets spread around that way and they can be addressed specifically, they can be encrypted. There's supposedly the idea that outside agencies won't be able to, to spy on it and break into it. I don't put any faith in that kind of claim, but if you do, please go and take a look at BitMessage. At any rate, something like BitMessage working on a wireless mesh network, which we talked about in a previous edition of the Corbett Report podcast, could be a potential way to uh, to get around the censorship and the uh, the snooping and spying of the the, the alphabet soup agencies. Um, another possible idea that's just being launched right now, as far as I know, startmail.com. As people know, I always urge people to use startpage.com instead of google.com to do your searches because it is a search engine that at the very least claims that they do not record or track your IP address or what you search for. So again, you, just like anything on the internet, you have to take it for at face value or or just put up your hands and say, well, you don't know. But they say at any rate that they don't track anything. And they are uh, affiliated with uh, with 
the researcher whose name is going to escape me as I'm tra- talking right now, which is unfortunate because she's uh, uh, Catherine Albrecht, of course, Catherine Albrecht, who's done some incredible research on RFIDs, etc. Many people probably know her from her own radio show, etc. So she's affiliated with startpage.com. So if uh, uh, if you trust her and what she's saying, then, then at any rate, you can use Startpage like I do to do your searching. Now they have a mail service called Startmail. They're in beta testing or they're about to go into beta testing. So if you're interested in, in trying that out or at least finding out more, I'll put the link to startmail.com in the show notes so that you can go and explore that at your leisure. Uh, let's move on to the next uh, email as my uh, son cries in the background with my wife uh, attending dutifully to him while I record this uh, podcast. So please uh, forgive the, the dulcet tones of my baby's voice. Uh, next, we have Marty who writes, How do you justify wanting to know what goes on at things like Bilderberg versus individual privacy rights? It seems to me that if we, the people, believe we are entitled to privacy, then even the elites are entitled to privacy. Should we all have to publish a guest list and an agenda when we have a few friends over for dinner? This is a serious question. I really wonder how we justify principles if we don't stand by them all, even for the, even the elites. Stand by them for all, even the elites. End quote. Uh, thank you for the question, Marty. It's one that I have received from other people as well, so uh, I, I have no doubt it's a serious question, and I ha- have no doubt there are people out there who are struggling to to understand this and and where this is coming from. But I think there's a couple of flaws in in the uh, in the way that you've addressed that email that I want to point out because it goes to the heart of the matter. So let's look at the analogy that is being employed here. If we have a dinner party with a few friends over, are we expected to publish an agenda or keep meeting minutes and to publish them and give press conferences about what we talked about? Of course not, because we have privacy and we don't want that infringed upon. So why should these people have to have that infringed upon? I mean, just because they're rich or whatever, that doesn't mean that they should, that we shouldn't all be protected by privacy uh, rights, right? Uh, Sorry, that analogy is fundamentally flawed because... As people having some people over for dinner for a discussion is fundamentally different than what happens at Bilderberg, and to claim otherwise is uh, disingenuous at best. Of course, that is more or less the official version of uh, of what Bilderberg is. It's a talking shop for tea and crumpets. So why would they uh, be forced to publish an agenda or or anything of the sort? Well, first of all, I think the, the real point here is that they're not forced to publish anything. They're not forced to do anything, um, although maybe they should be because of some of the people who are in attendance, which we'll get into more later. But, uh, but at any rate, if there was anything like Bilderberg with, say, a hundred celebrities, a hundred movie stars, a hundred sports stars that were meeting uh, in a secret location once a year, you can bet that the the press would move heaven and hell. They would scale mountains. They would do whatever it took to get photos, to get interviews, to speculate on what was going on. They'd be 24-7 camped out outside with telephoto lenses doing anything they could to break that story. And the point is that the fourth estate, the media, has not only utterly failed to do that, but has actively collaborated in the suppression of knowledge of the existence of this meeting, um, which again is not a tea and crumpets meeting. It is a meeting of not only the, the some of the richest people in the world, and not only members of the royal families, but perhaps more importantly, people who are supposedly elected representatives, prime ministers, finance ministers, uh, uh, presidents. Although of course they don't attend in a, on the official guest list, but we know that Obama and uh, 
and Clinton attended back in 2008, although they don't admit that officially. Uh, uh, defense ministers, um, people in uh, in the World Bank, etc. People who, um, in many cases, have been elected to office to represent constituents who are traveling to Bilderberg, uh, although not officially on company business, but for example, if you take a look at uh, Tony Blair, he actually misled Parliament. That's the fancy technical correct term for lied to Parliament by saying that he hadn't attended Bilderberg um, when, in fact, uh, he was confronted by We Are Change uh, in 2012 and admitted, yes, yeah, I attended in 1993 and it was a great time. It was a wonderful discussion we had. Blah, blah, blah. So, again, admitting openly that he lied to Parliament about it. Um, so, uh, uh, and, and these people are collaborating and, and discussing and setting policy and agenda with the the heads of finance, the heads of business, and uh, the heads of royal families, which, again, is utterly, utterly, utterly unethical, to say the least, and illegal when it comes to the United States situation. As people may or may not know, there's something called the Logan Act, which was enacted in 1799, uh, 1799 by President Adams, which states that it's illegal for U.S. citizens to uh, to d- meet or discuss uh, American policy with with foreign a- agents in a way that's detrimental to the United States without permission. Blah blah blah. Um, the point is the point is that this statute is on the books and it makes it actually illegal for people like. Uh, people like Wolfenson and uh, and 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 uh, Petraeus and whoever else visits in whatever capacity um, connected with the, the U.S. government or U.S. citizens um, who are there discussing U.S. politics and U.S. policies with the other attendees. Again, the fact that they're discussing policies and setting agendas that are then implemented at national levels again is not subject to debate. That was admitted by the former Secretary General of NATO Willie Clays, who last year gave a, 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 a an interview to a Belgian uh, radio outlet in which he admitted that's exactly what happens at Bilderberg, that uh, they have discussions, that they're given summaries of those discussions, and then they're expected to implement those policies uh, in their local levels. So again, agendas are being set and policies are being discussed. This is not a tea and crumpets affair. This involves elected representatives who are meeting in secret and off the record with some of the most richest and most influential people on the planet. This is not a matter of simple privacy. And if it was, then then in that case it shouldn't be actively protected and covered up and and literally guarded by taxpayers money which it is and that leads us into the next question i have uh, uh, regarding bilderberg and this comes from an uh, email from andy who writes the Bilderberg meetings are extravagant affairs that require the rental of a five-star hotel, special servants, and private public security enforcement. Attendance is by invitation only and not by request from the participants. The question then arises, who foots the bill for this world-class extravaganza? Well, there is an answer to that. The official answer of what who officially pays for these meetings is that uh, the Bilderberg Steering Committee consists of people from all of the various countries that make up the Bilderberg uh, members. And it is the responsibility of the members of the steering committee from that particular host country who uh, foot the bill for the, the hospitality costs, etc. regarding Bilderberg. So, uh, so, for example, in the UK's case, it would be the UK members of the steering committee that are supposed to foot the bill um, through whatever means that they have to do that. 
but uh, and and so for example in the UK case specifically there is a, a a charitable group called the Bilderberg Association documents have been leaked online uh, regarding their with the money that they get and where they get their money for this uh, for footing this bill and uh, I'll put the link in so you can go and download the document for yourself and you can find that the Bilderberg Association back in 2008 which is the last time they actually reported who um, who their donors are received 50,000 pounds each from Goldman Sachs and BP and 23,000 pounds um, were of that were towards Bilderberg meetings so the good old, good old friends at Goldman Sachs and BP are, are helping to foot the bill in the UK case but that is for the hospitality that's for renting the hotel that's for flying the guests in and uh, and and all the amenities and services that they enjoy during this uh, four-day conference three-day conference four days of of frolicking in the sun uh, the uh, the English sun there in uh, Watford um, but but what about the security? The security is a different matter altogether and an extremely important one. And uh, let's just take a look at, uh, at the Watford Observer because, in fact, the mayor of Watford recently had something to say to the Prime Minister of the UK, David Cameron, about who is footing the bill for Bilderberg's security. Uh, in this article called Watford Elected, uh, Watford Elected Mayor, Dorothy Thornhill writes to Prime Minister David Cameron over Bilderberg Group concerns. It says, quote, the elected mayor of Watford has written to the Prime Minister voicing concern about the potential impact the Bilderberg security operation will have on the country's police budget. Dorothy Thornhill penned a letter this week to David Cameron saying she found it galling that the Hertfordshire taxpayers sh could shoulder the cost of policing a meeting for some of the wealthiest people in the world. End quote. I'll let you go on, continue reading that. But yes, the security is being uh, footed by the U UK taxpayers. So again, this is not a dinner party with, for, with a few private guests to have a little private meeting. If I have a dinner party, I don't have guard, uh, armed security uh, provided by the, the Japanese government holding people away. And I, I don't have members of the press actively collaborating and keeping this out of the press. And I don't have elected representatives meeting behind closed doors and off the record with, with billionaires and uh, heads of royal family to set and enact global policy issues. This is not a little tea and crumpets affair. And once again, it surprises me to the extent to which people will go out of their way to make excuses for things, which even the, the mayor of Watford and other people uh, in similar positions have come out and said, this is not fair to the taxpayers at the very, very least. So again, um, I don't think we should be making um, special special rules for these people. Um, if it's a private affair, then they can have their private meeting in their private little secluded place. But still, my gripe is with the media for not even attempting to report on it. And uh, secondly, I think that uh, when there are elected officials who are on the taxpayer's dime being protected from um, people outside... Uh, I, I think that they, again, it's absolutely their responsibility to be public and accountable for what they say in those situations. And again, I'm an anarchist, so I don't believe there should be government, and I don't think there, the, you know, there should be anything of the sort. But as long as we do live in an elected representative democracy, um, then at the very least, then yes, the, the people who pay those bills do have the right to know what goes on behind those closed doors. That is not a, a, a privacy issue. All right, next we have a, another question about Bilderberg in from Chris, who writes, Do you believe the Bilderbergs, Bilderbergers want us to know that we really are ruled? End quote. All right, thank you for the question, Chris. It's a, it's a good question. It's a common question. A lot of people have a question similar to this. Um, I think that the way that I would put it is a slightly different than that, because um, uh, I think they would like us to believe 
that we are ruled. Because again, no one is more enslaved than someone who believes themselves to be a slave. Uh, I know that the traditional formulation of that is no one is more enslaved than those who believe they are free. But if you truly believe that, oh, well, there's this power structure, there's the pyramid, there's the, the all-seeing eye at the top, and there's nothing the average person can do about it. It's just one big overarching monolithic conspiracy that controls everything then you have already given up. I mean, in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, you have conceded the battle completely because it's just impossible. There's nothing you can do, so you might as well just go and, I don't know, just curl up in a fetal position in the corner and suck your thumb until uh, until you die, basically. And uh, so I think that they definitely want to purvey the idea that there is this complete 100% total control over everything that happens. Of course, for there's different layers of propaganda for different stratas of society and for the the basic level that we get find in the mainstream media obviously they're going to say oh it's conspiracy theory you believe in interstellar lizards blah 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 and just try to deflect uh, criticism that way but for the people who escape that matrix and are looking for more there's going to be that that higher order propaganda that we control everything nothing you can do will have any effect resistance is futile um, where, of course, I don't believe that to be the case, or I wouldn't be here talking to you right now. So I have done an entire episode of my radio podcast, a radio broadcast on this, called The New World Order Does Not Control Everything. And I'd like to give you the Corp, Corp Report radio number, so you can go look that up, but I can't find it as I'm speaking here off the cuff. I'll put it in the show notes, of course, um, where I talk a little bit more about this and the fact that we can't just give in to the idea that they control everything, so we might as well just give up, because in that way that we we actually lose all right uh we're already over 30 minutes here now so i think we better start wrapping things up but just a couple of questions before we go uh first off an email from christopher who writes i'm trying to figure out if one of the books on your shelf is thomas aquinas's selected writings okay thank you uh for the question christopher and uh i i fully relate to people's uh, uh interest in bookshelves i must admit every time uh, perhaps this is my former English major coming through, but every time there I see an interview where there's someone's bookshelf behind them, I do my best to try to see what books I can find, what what uh, what book spines I can read from their uh, their shelf. So I understand, and so let me actually share some of them with you. Excuse me while I uh, while I have some dead air getting some of the books. So um, some of the books I think are probably not surprising. Others are just uh, random. Um, there's a book called Representative Men in Japan that I um, that I got from one of the schools that I worked at a few years ago. And it's an, just an interesting little book. Of, uh, it's in both Japanese and English, so it's a good study book. And uh, it just talks about some of the uh, the people of Japan and some of the famous figures from history. Uh, very interesting, talking about educators and, and uh, spiritual figures, politicians, etc. Um, books like Seeds of Destruction, which I've talked about, for example, on The Truth About the Gene Revolution, which is, if I may say so myself, one of, uh, one of my better podcast episodes, although very few people <laughs> seem to have watched that one, unfortunately. Um, things like... Uh, the uh, the English proficiency test uh, book in Japanese. This is actually my wife's, but I'm keeping it on my shelf. Uh, Globalization of Poverty in the New World Order by Michelle Chosodovsky. Global Economic Crisis by Michelle Chosodovsky and Andrew Gavin Marshall. Uh, books like uh, Swallows and Amazons, which is a book that I bought on the recommendation of Tom Secker, who wants to discuss it on a future film literature in the New World Order series. Um, Triple Cross, which I've talked about before on the broadcast. 
Ooh, that's not good. Um, Biography of Bill Gates, uh, Crossfire by Jim Mars. Um, uh, really excellent book on, on the JFK assassination. Um, all sorts of books like that. Uh, a couple more that I'll share with you. Um, in Search of Lost Time by Marcel Proust. This is volume five. I believe there are six volumes in this translation. And, uh, and it is a remarkably large book. This is, again, this is volume five. It's altogether over, I think, 3,000 pages. And, uh, and back in my English uh, lit days, I went through and actually read the first four volumes of this and, and was genuinely loved it. But, uh, but uh, I got to the fifth volume and just never ever got through got through to reading it. So I am stuck on the fifth volume of In Search of Lost Time. So shh, no one tell me how it ends. I don't want to know. Um, and I'll share this one with you as well. Uh, this is Absalom Absalom by William Faulkner, which for my money is the greatest work ever written in the English language. I absolutely love Faulkner, and this book in particular is just mind-blowing, but it's not everyone's cup of tea, so please don't blame me if you go out and read this and and don't understand a word of it or don't like a word of it. I think it's absolutely just mind-blowing, but uh, but maybe that's just my particular proclivities. Uh, a couple of other things I'll share with you uh, from the other bookshelf. Um, College Green. This is the literary publication of Trinity College Dublin, and back in 2002-2003 it was edited by yours truly. Um, so basically I put together an editorial committee, solicited poems and short fiction from uh, students at Trinity College and designed, laid out, and published uh, this this uh, publication for the graduate student committee at Trinity College. So that's the one for the uh, the archives there, if you uh, ever find yourself at Trinity. And, uh, and finally, how about this one? This one is uh, You Do Not Talk About Fight Club, a collection of essays about Fight Club, the movie and the book, of course. And uh, this was put together by the editor and the publisher of Metafilm, um, an online uh, film site. And uh, it includes a foreword by Chuck Palahniuk, the author of, uh, of Fight Club. And, uh, oh, who's that? Oh, yes, uh, James Corbett has an essay in here called Soap and Anarchy, a Bartsian reading of Fight Club. So <laughs> uh, I wouldn't recommend going out and getting the book specifically for that essay because it's... I don't. It has nothing to do with Corbett Report type material, but at any rate, that's just another thing um, up the sleeve there. So anyway, lots of little interesting nuggets on the bookshelf, but no, no Thomas Aquinas selected writings. I don't have Aquinas's writings, so you might have uh, missed uh, missed that one. Uh, finally, uh, I'd like to turn to a tweet from at Mister Seacrudge who um, was writing in response to a tweet that I made about uh, my subscriber-only video this month, which is um, myself reading my poetry, uh, reading a few samples of my poetry, and he said, well, can, can you tell me who's your fav favorite poet, even if I don't subscribe? Is it Peter Dale Scott? Um, from the 20th century, I like Francis Ponge. I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, thank you, Mr. Seacrudge, for the question. Um, favorite poet? That's interesting. Um... I must admit, I don't have a favorite poet because I'm not particularly interested in poetry. I I appreciate a good poem, um, but I'm not specifically into poetry. I've more, um, certainly back in my English literature days, I was more interested in novels and in fiction. So that's where my proclivities lie. Um, back in the day, I remember I was quite a fan of E.E. E. Cummings, but 
what high school or college student doesn't go through an E.E. E. Cummings phase or, or someone like Dorothy Parker wrote a very clever, very interesting little poems, but uh, Sylvia Plath maybe. But, but I don't have a particular favorite poet. I, I, don't, um, I don't read enough poetry to have a favorite poet. But uh, certainly when it comes to fiction and literature, I was a modernist at heart. I love the modernists from Conrad, who I'll place in with the modernists, to Joyce. Obviously, that's why I went to Ireland. To William Faulkner, um, absolutely, I think, one of the greatest writers in the English language. Um, so that's that's my literary influences. And for people who are interested in that video where I go and read through some of the uh, the poetry from my own notebook, um, that is in this month's subscriber-only uh, video, which is in this week's subscriber newsletter. So if you sign up for the newsletter sometime before this Saturday, you can get that uh, that delivered to your inbox and you can watch that video where I read some of my poetry. At any rate, that's going to do it for now. Um, we've gone well over time this time. So once again, thank you for all the questions. Keep them coming in. Again, through the contact form, YouTube comments, video responses, or Twitter, and uh, and I'll do my best to get to and answer all the questions that I can. Thanks again, and I'm looking forward to talking to you again real soon.